the way that we help solve the solution is we created the first total staffing supply chain management product. So typical process, I can't find staff, number of solutions. I'm going to call text wait. I may be able to mass text the team quickly. If that fails, I will go to two-sided marketplaces or expensive outsourced staffing companies, or I'll hire travel staff for super high premiums. Drops that says, hold on a second. You have an entire inventory that you have not even accessed. Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those you don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Maines. Welcome back to the Sassfield Podcast, where our Super Bowl is always full of guacamole. I am your host, Jeff Maines. Well, the NFL season kicks off this week, and college games are already underway. I mean, football is huge here in Texas. I don't know about where you are, but uh, fans are crazy, and sometimes I'm one of those as well. I'm in Dallas. I think a lot of you know that, and a lifetime Cowboys fan, win or lose. Every season, I think this is going to be the year. And well, you know, it's been a while, right? But this year is going to be different. I'm telling you, this is going to be the year. Super Bowl bound, baby. All right, we'll see. But as entrepreneurs, you know, I think we think the same way. You know, every day we know that this is going to be our day, our week, our month, our year. Big wins ahead. And, you know, sometimes they are. Sometimes we get knocked down. Sometimes we win big. And sometimes, you know, things just don't quite go as planned. But as entrepreneurs, we pick ourselves up. We get back in the game and win the next play. And it's really easy to think in big, broad terms of seasons and championships. But, you know, those wins don't come that way. They actually come one play at a time. They come from the preparation, the practice, the refining skills that we do, and a lot of getting knocked down and getting back up. And so wherever you are on your journey, win the next play, get back up, and win the next one play by play, and stack those wins together. This is going to be your year. Absolutely. So drop me a note and tell me about your wins or call in a comment and I'll play it on a future episode. But this is going to be your year. Play by play. That's how you win. Win each play. Well, in last week's episode, we talked with Andrew Butt, co-founder and CEO of Enable, a modern cloud-based B2B software solution for rebate management. He's absolutely revolutionizing the way pricing and selling models work across more than 50 industries. You know, it's one of those markets, rebate management, that you sort of know about or know exists maybe from the outside, but Enable delivers an absolutely critical solution worth millions and millions of dollars for clients. So it's something that's really critical technology on the inside for them. It's really the, it's their lifeblood. And really fascinating, Andrew's a, just a super, super smart dude. So if you missed it, Go back and give it a listen for sure. My guest this week is a critical care trauma nurse turned SaaS founder. She spent years working in top well-funded hospitals, and yet they were always short-staffed. And you know, if you've been around healthcare or hospitals, you know that's 100% right. Some of the greatest places in the world. And it seems like you know nurses are always overworked and they're always short-staffed, always need additional coverage. 
And Sarah saw the challenge. And you know, the big thing was patient care was suffering. And uh, so what do great nurses do? Well, they take care of people, right? And that is exactly what she did. In this case, she did it with technology. So Sarah created DropStat to solve the staffing issues at hospital systems in a really unique way. And that also ensures safe patient care and delivers better outcomes. A DropStat impacts thousands of lives, reduces cost, and improves care. So welcome a real healthcare hero, Sarah Well. Well, hey, Sarah, welcome to SAS Fuel. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I love your founder story and that you come from inside of healthcare to build a SaaS product. So tell me a little bit about that journey of uh, your journey from healthcare to tech. Yeah. So, well, I have like a two-phase journey. I have like my early journey, which kind of speaks to how I started researching all things business and how that was even on my in my rear view mirror at all. And then I was kind of looking for a problem to solve while I was in healthcare, right? So I have like the phase one story and the phase two story. So my phase one is the one that you probably saw on LinkedIn, where I was, my husband and I were both in school. I was in nursing school. My husband was in dental school. And as you know, we were both students, I was working at an expensive shoe store to help put myself through nursing school, like kids shoes, European, like 90 to a hundred dollars for a pair. I was not spending that kind of money on myself, but I was, <laughs> I was working in the shoe store selling shoes to kids to help, you know, whatever it takes. So we were broke to say the least. And when we got to the airport headed to my parents out of town for the holidays, I wanted something to read on the plane and didn't bring anything with me and went to one of the little newsstand kiosks in the airport. And I did not have the $3.99 to buy a magazine on the plane, like, you know, to read on the plane. So fine, no problem. I'll figure out a workaround. We have a connecting flight. I'll just stay on the plane and leave last. And I'll take whatever reading materials left behind. You know, people leave stuff behind. Fine. Great plan. All the time. Yeah. So I did that. And sure enough, all the tabloid magazines I could possibly want. And probably I could have taken two or three of each. Right. And I couldn't do it. It was like, so clear to me that these magazines are reporting on who's wearing what and it's the glitz and the glam of you know the who's who in Hollywood and I did not want to read about what brand of water Rihanna's drinking when I couldn't even afford the magazine that was reporting it and I I just couldn't do it right so I kept walking and now of course I'm walking through first class and I noticed that all the reading material changed interesting it was not us and people and tabloid magazines. It was all Wall Street Journal, Incorporated, Entrepreneur. And it was so clear to me in that moment why these people are sitting in first class and why everybody else is sitting in coach. And I was like, I'm never going back. <laughs> right? I never want to be back in that place where I can't afford a magazine for $3.99. I grabbed all the material I could get my hands on all the Wall Street Journals, all the Inc. magazines, Entrepreneur. And I completely did a complete 180 on the information that I was consuming. So everything in my life stopped being about anything gossip culture on my downtime, right? My downtime was 
all focused on what's happening in the markets and how are the leading companies solving problems, making decisions. And I started looking up things on YouTube like Startup Grind and things like you're building right now with you know, SaaS Academy and all these different types of products that really give you free information. I could not believe that people were looking up cat videos when you could be learning how to solve multi-million dollar problems that we encounter every day. So that was how I kind of knew that I wanted to do something, but I wasn't quite sure what, right? So kept, you know, along my trajectory, love medicine. It's the problem solving. It's Um, helping people in their most vulnerable state. Changing lives. Totally changing lives. And the impact that you feel to this day, Jeff, there is nothing like the impact that you feel when you're able to be supportive to someone in a way that requires a lot of training, not just emotionally supportive, but really helping to solve complex problems and intervening in a way that can change outcomes. Like there's so few things that really make you feel that kind of sense of purpose and commitment. And I loved it. I loved it every minute of it, even the hard days. But I did notice that as I worked my way up in trauma critical care medicine, I became a charge nurse. And that means that it's like being the construction foreman, right? Like you're responsible for everybody coming and going, making sure that like our new grad nurses have the equipment they need. They We sign off on, you know, super high risk medications and giving them the support they need, making sure that if anything goes really wrong on the unit, you're kind of the more experienced hands on deck to really provide that additional support. And I noticed I worked in the best funded hospitals, by the way. We were always short-staffed. Wow. We were always short-staffed. And and it has a major impact on patient outcomes because, I mean, think about it. Probably the most important part of being in a hospital is that there's eyes on you and that if there is an unexpected bleed, if there is an early sign of a stroke, it's the nurses, the operational arm of healthcare that are supposed to notice those things. And if those assessments and those early symptom recognitions are not done in a timely manner, that impacts whether someone will get through something with complications or will have a good outcome. That is a huge, huge factor, right? You know, getting those stroke symptoms recognized early, they say time is brain, you know, there's so many times where that small dip in a blood pressure, you know, your nursing intuition goes, something's off. And many times you're right, you know, getting the care but you can't be resuscitating in one room if you're short staffed. You know, it's kind of all hands on deck. And then there's nobody to notice those signs and symptoms in another room because you literally physically are one person. You can't be everywhere at once. So it's not like you're filing extra paperwork or table number 45 is going to have to wait a little longer for their entree. In healthcare, you can't be short staffed. So what is the impact of that when a hospital is short staffed? How does that affect patient outcomes and the care people receive? Or don't. Yeah. So, well, the exactly. Or don't, right? Because that happens too, where you may not have enough staff in a hospital and the ambulances in the area quite literally have to divert patients to facilities that are further away. So on for that patient, that can mean they, they won't survive, even if it's critical. No staff means no staff, no beds. Mean, and sometimes no beds means no nurses to staff those empty beds. It doesn't necessarily mean no beds. That could mean that they have 
doubled or tripled people as much as they they can without creating exponential liability. Because anytime we overstaff nurses, it is, you know, there's research on that, that liability risk. Every time you give a nurse more patients than what's called the safe staffing ratio, there's like a proven number of patients that any given nurse can take care of. For example, in the ICU, it tends to be two patients to one nurse. If you would give, let's say myself, three to take care of on any given night, assuming they're all critical care patients, not just one that couldn't get to their, you know, a bed on the lower downgraded floor, each patient I'm caring for has a 7% increased risk of mortality. Wow. Think about it. How many products do we have that were literally built and the hospitals pay millions of dollars for them, like robotic surgery, et cetera, um, to decrease risk so that we have better outcomes? Well, if we're spending all that cash on those innovative products only to lose that risk factor mitigation on the staffing side because we don't have enough staff, there isn't much value to that, right? So in terms of impact to how does this affect patient care? Well, they could have to be diverted, right, to another hospital, which could mean that you could literally live next door to a stroke center and someone you or I may love has a stroke and cannot go to that hospital that could be two, three, four minutes away. They've got to go somewhere else. And then that that complicates everything else as well. 100%. And they may have the best CT scanners. They may have the world's best neurosurgeons. And it doesn't matter because if there's no staff, there's no staff. It could mean that someone's in pain for 10, 20 minutes longer while we're taking care of someone who's more critical. It's not just one person caring for, you know, it's not just myself caring for my patients. If something becomes critical, we have to all kind of band together. You know, someone's grabbing, you know, a transfuser, someone's grabbing blood and, you know, we're turning our patients together. Many of our patients require more than one person to turn, even if there's products that help, you know, there's so many different complexities of care, especially now where our patients tend to have comorbidities. You know, when you go to nursing school or de- or medical school, it's so neat and clean in the textbooks, right? Respiratory problems, right? cardiac problems, renal problems. It's really just one simple thing. But when we encounter the typical patient today, they have four or five of those issues. Sure. So the comparison is like, learning how to drive on a little tykes car <laughs> versus <laughs> versus being tossed into like a nascar setting you are having to create multidisciplinary you know really complex treatment plans and that means that it really does require your you to be focused and to have that attention and those ratios become that much more critical so encountering these short staffing issues all the time. We're seeing the impacts of care. We're seeing post-op bleeding. We're seeing increased complications after what should be routine procedures. And the worst part is feeling like you contributed to the problem, but not provide care on time. Wow. You come here, you spend years of your life not going to weddings, not going to parties, not going to different kinds of events so that you could become this healthcare professional and you've directly held the hands of the patients that you're caring for. You are so emotionally invested. Even if you don't see it sometimes, you know, you may see a healthcare provider, they seem so stoic, they all have a cry spot on the unit. Do you know what I mean? Of course. And when you have to go home feeling like somebody was in pain longer or something could have turned out better 
if you could have run faster, if you, you know what I mean? And then being even more afraid that when you're giving meds on twice the number of patients that you are legally and per research supposed to be caring for, those are all critically timed meds. And now your care is late and it's not for any factors within your control, but, but you're still at risk and your licensure is on the line. That's what creates burnout. It's not the workload. How have you solved that with Dropstat? Tell me about that and really bringing the solution to the problem that you experienced. So one particular night, I'm noticing that I'm calling and texting staff to come into work because we had three patients that were going downhill at the same time. And calling and texting, thinking there's gamma knife surgery upstairs. I'm calling and texting the people right here. I can't reach people on the two, three other floors that are cross-trained to work here right? I'm reaching a third of the workforce, maybe, that should be able to work on this unit. So I have a narrowed workforce. Calling and texting is not efficient. I'm wasting my time. I should be helping to provide care on the patient unit on the milieu. And I'm just going to say yes to the first person who agrees to come in. I don't really care if they're two, three, four hours in overtime. So the, the decisions are not cost efficient. And I was so frustrated that night. I had a brother who was in the startup space and I kind of knew some of the lingo and I was like, I think this is a problem that that's not just existing here. I think this is a scaled problem and it probably has a solution that can scale. Called him up after that shift and discussed it with him. And he's like, that sounds like something you can fix with some algorithms. And he's like, but I'm busy and the process is going to build you. So go ahead and do it. And when you have <laughs> revenue, you me for guidance and assistance and not the answer I wanted, but absolutely the answer I needed, right? Because it really like going through that, that fire of building a product and being a new founder and being unsteady and falling while you're trying to learn how to walk as a founder. But that's exactly what Dropset does. So the way that we help solve the solution is we created the first total staffing supply chain management product. So typical process, I can't find staff, number of solutions. I'm going to call text wait. I may be able to mass text the team quickly. If that fails, I will go to two-sided marketplaces or expensive outsourced staffing companies, or I'll hire travel staff for super high premiums. Dropstat says, hold on a second. You have an entire inventory that you have not even accessed. First of all, wow. So we provide workforce expansion, instantly reaching everybody that's cross-trained to work that specific uh, floor unit space. So whether it's a nursing home and we can connect multiple facilities at once, or whether it's a hospital and we can connect you with the seven or eight other areas within the hospital that can work within your unit, right? So let's say I work neuro ICU, medical ICU, surgical ICU, maybe if there's a burn ICU, and sometimes certain ER nurses can be cross can work in your unit as well. Meaning instead of reaching 200 nurses, you should be able to reach 800 to 1200, especially if there's another hospital nearby. For example, let's say UCLA has Ronald Reagan and Santa Monica UCLA, and they're maybe 30 minutes apart from each other. So drops that says, first of all, let's check your internal inventory every time you have an open space. And before that, I brought in a lot of the medical practices, the best practices that we use to optimize patient outcomes. I brought that into this space as well. So the first thing we look at when we want something to turn out well is how early can I intervene? So we created AI and machine learning algorithms that will identify chronic open needs and spit those out to the entire infrastructure about 60 days in advance. 
being able to get that early communication to the entire infrastructure means that we're filling at least 20 to 35% more shifts than were filled before, before we even access the high cost staff. Does that make sense? It does. And I think that's a brilliant solution and something that could never be solved with making phone calls or texting people that you know, or that you, you know, you know, are qualified to work there in that unit. It just, it it's opens up the entire world to just with the app. So I think it's an absolutely brilliant solution. Yeah, it's great. So, and that's what it does. So it starts off with saying, hold on, is this a chronic need that a machine can identify and communicate to more people earlier? Or is this a last minute cover, right? So most of the shift gaps we found were actually not last minute needs. That makes sense. They could have been recognized. (laughs) (laughs) They could have been recognized months in advance, but without looking at that pattern and seeing where there's chronic needs are, it's hard to know. Now we have a little bit of a safety cushion if there are those additional needs, right? So there's, and we're not only utilizing overtime, right? Because some of the issues, well, if we access all the other, there's so many different part-time and per diem staff members that we're not leveraging who may be available from different units, different parts of the hospital. They're already vetted on your policies and procedures. So get this, they're safer. They are safer to practice in your unit than someone who's outsourced and works in your unit maybe once or twice per week, per month right? Because that makes sense. when there's a chronic issue, they know who to call. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And they don't have to look it up. And those seconds in this space, they, they matter so much. And there are amazing staff members that come from temp agencies, but all the data is very clear. There are less errors when you have your internal teams that are much more familiar with your own systems, taking care of your own patients. And in nursing homes, that continuity of care in the nursing home space, right? That's not just someone who isn't feeling well, that is their home. Right. So having a familiar or a more familiar face is so important for them to feel safe and for their experience as a resident of a nursing home as well. So that's kind of our second segment. We have the enterprise hospital segment, the nursing home assisted living segments. And then the third area that drops that really optimizes. So we have kind of that early symptom recognition is that machine learning identification of where those chronic needs are. And then we also do forecasting. So we use AI to forecast the needs as well. So really trying to solve problems ahead of their crisis state. So we look at data-driven staffing versus crisis chaos-driven staffing. And chaos will always make us make more expensive decisions, right? When we're hungry, (laughs) <laughs> when we're hungry, <laughs> what are you going to reach to eat, right? Whatever's there, anything. Exactly. Yeah. But if we meal prep and whatever's there is really smart, healthier options. The other thing that we did was we put in, we automated decision support processes so that we're able to differentiate between staff members who are two hours in overtime versus eight hours in overtime. And that makes a difference, not only on the cost side. So Here's where we ended up saving our clients a lot, a lot of money in care delivery and in staffing labor operating expenses. We also implemented all kinds of fintech solutions where we're identifying role inefficiency, right? So let's say a nurse can pick up an LVN position, right? So that's like a nurse that has more training, but they cost more, right? Right. So we want to identify that. It's the same care. We don't need to access that. That's like having a neurosurgeon giving a flu shot. 
You can do that. Oh, of course. And if you're, there's nobody else, do it. But if there is, the system cannot afford to make cost inefficient decisions because when we waste our staffing budgets on overpricing the care that we need, we're not able to bring in and hire as many people as we need, right? So safe care is cost effective. That just creates more shortages. It's all of that, that last minute inefficiency and in, in taking whatever is available that, that uh, just uses up those budgets and creates more shortages and it perpetuates. 100%. And people don't think about it like that. So the crazy thing is like we come in and we're kind of teaching this to a lot of our executive teams. We're like, when you have safe care, that does drive revenue because think about, remember, like we talked about all those hospitals that are diverting right. to facilities that are staffed. When you have better staffing, that is the most cost efficient decision that you could make. You're driving revenue, you're driving better, you know, reported quality of care. And today the Prescani scores and the patient satisfaction scores actually drive the reimbursement for hospitals. They will get reimbursed more for you know, different procedures that were done and different care provided if the clients were more satisfied with their care. So making sure that there's adequate staffing, you're not only preventing churn, you're not only preventing burnout, you're literally driving revenue, right? So it's so important that we're able to reach everyone internally that would be able to potentially pick up that shift, get those needs out as early as possible. And then on the business transaction side, We have to quickly and efficiently identify for role inefficiency, making sure that first and foremost, those shift gaps need to be filled. And a shift gap is where you have your scheduling system and whoever is in your team is given their proper schedule. Now there's always, let's say 17 to 30% of your shift needs are not filled. So that's where we kind of created the first GSM. We call it the first gap shift management. And we're able to use our processes and algorithms to fill them a lot quicker and and much more efficiently. So making sure that we really focus on that cost side, right? We want to make sure that first and foremost, those shifts are filled. But then the system says, hold on, let's make sure this is a cost efficient decision. Do we have more than two people available that are not in overtime? If we do, let's see who's more cost efficient. Is one an RN and one is an LVN? I don't need the RN, I need the LVN. So the system makes these decisions really quickly and efficiently. Having a care provider take care of that patient who's in two hours of overtime instead of 12 hours overtime, actually there's a quality of care element to that as well. It's your nurse is less tired, presumably, right? Sure. And the care is a little more perhaps intentional. Now, there's still, there will still be overtime for that nurse. There's always overtime. But where we can create better, more affordable care, we'd like to. You know, So we identify for all these different high cost items and we present it all you know, on platforms so that you can always see as a corporate workforce manager how the system automated those approvals like based on what criteria. So it's very transparent. And the last thing we really like to ensure as a platform is if you do need to create any sort of shift incentive, what we noticed in a lot of healthcare facilities is that they're creating all different kinds of bonus and incentive pay that really needs to be dynamically priced, right? So you can't just arbitrarily throw $200 at a shift, right? Drops that OS says, hold on, how early should you have known about that need? (laughs) Did you get it out early? And what's fascinating is that we can really help ensure that the bonuses that are added, if you need to have any sort of critical staffing pay or bonus pay, is really based on how critical that need is, right? 
So, and by recognizing that three, four days in advance, we can drive what was a $200 bonus down to just $50 four days in advance. That makes sense. So a lot of companies, uh, particularly in the, the tech space, look at healthcare and are trying to develop solutions for that. So many of them, it seems like comes from the outside where you come from the inside. What are the, the differences? What are the benefits from coming from the inside versus the outside and just the, the quality of the solutions? Yeah, so that's it's so interesting you asked, and it's a little bit multifactorial in that when you go to work in a hospital, most people don't know this, they make you sign off on your intellectual property. So interesting. Um, if you create any idea or solution, they quote unquote own it. So the healthcare professionals that I know in this space that created solutions, when they had an idea, they left. Yeah, because they can't create it while they're still working there. That's kind of sad. It's very sad. It's it's something that was so clearly created by attorneys <laughs> and not healthcare <laughs> professionals. I mean, think about it. If I was going to run a hospital, I'd be like, we will pay you to come up with solutions. We'll help fund it. Just give us maybe two, three months for free. So you're going to make our care more cost efficient and more, you know, improve the quality of that's everything we stand for. Right. And to answer your question, unfortunately, that's why I think a lot of healthcare providers are prevented from gatekept, so to speak, from going into this space because they don't want to leave medicine or they may not want to like pick up multiple per diem jobs to fill in the space for the full-time job. You can't just like have an idea and then start building it because where's your income, right? So they would have to kind of go part-time in multiple different facilities. And then when you go part-time, you don't have to fill out those forms because they can't prove that it came from their facility, right? So that is a huge issue. You know, I feel like if not for that, we'd see a lot more innovation. I mean, think about it. If we have facial recognition software in Macy's, why don't we have it by every ER? That would make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I think we would have moved a lot further ahead. The other area that I think is a big issue is that the time that it takes to be a founder takes a lot of time away from healthcare practice. So it's almost like you have to choose and healthcare professionals by and large really do love medicine and patient care. Of course. For me, very, very hard to leave. I miss it all the time. I really loved it. But of course, I'm so passionate about the solution we're building. And in addition, I think it might be hard for a lot of people to access capital in this space. What I found is that with with venture capital, angel investing, people either love healthcare or they're terrified to touch it because there's so many different um, compliances, for example, Our platform had to be union compliant. And when we show all the decision support tagging, we had to make sure that there it's, you know, seniority is recognized before cost. Do you know what I mean? So you have to really take into account all the different, you know, governing bodies that we have in healthcare, which for me coming in was kind of intuitive, but it does prevent some capital from flowing into this space because people tend to be a little bit afraid of healthcare. But yeah, I think those would be kind of the the typical barriers for getting someone from the inside to build the solutions. But I do think that if you can come from the inside, the solutions feel differently. For example, on our platform, we have like we have this integration with Amazon incentives where every time you pick up shifts, you get rewards from Amazon for all these you know, different products and gift cards. And it just makes it a little bit more fun. We can kind of gamify the system because we know 
which parts of healthcare can be hard and difficult. And yeah, maybe you need to work that over time and you do need to pick up those extra shifts, but it makes it a little more pleasant when drops that covers your coffee for the day or, you know, these little kinds yeah, just kind of creating culture on platform because we know how difficult it can be to be in healthcare. So I'd love to see more people coming from the inside. And that drives engagement as well when you do those kinds of incentives and it gets adoption. So it's not just the providers that have to use it or the, the hospitals. You actually have to have the nursing population that is, is accessing it. And so it's really building those two things at once. Was that a challenge for you in getting that engagement? It's so interesting that you should ask. When we initially started, we needed schedulers to be using the platform on the hospital side, right? Or on the healthcare provider side. Right, right. And, and, you know, we have the staff members on the other side of this kind of marketplace. We realized that there was a lot of inefficiency on the part of the schedulers. And it was preventing the proper metrics that we wanted as a company, meaning we knew we could save the facility 250000 per year per unit. But if the scheduler was not efficient about using the platform properly, or they didn't really totally convert to using it, meaning sometimes they're letting staff walk by the door and say, hey, Tracy, put me down for Tuesday. And then sometimes they were enforcing the use of the platform. It was preventing cost efficient decisions and efficient and safe care. So we kind of automated them out a little bit. We kind of created our own Tesla version of a self-driving product. So we have, you know, plugins into scheduling systems, we can pull out those empty shift gaps, we can have the system send it out automatically and self approve. So we really automated out a lot of that labor side, which, of course, also provides additional cost savings to the facility as well. So we kind of looked at it as an opportunity. Every time we saw inefficiency, or we hit kind of a roadblock, we would say, all right, how would an Elon Musk solve this? So we're like, we have self-driving cars. There's no reason we can't have self-driving scheduling. So we put in AI, we put in machine learning, we put in self-automating algorithms and built a much more efficient way, which I think is really going to help, especially in this, unfortunately, this current staffing shortage. Yeah, I think it's just been a lot worse even over the last couple of years and continuing to be that way as people are moving out of the system. Yeah. Coming across the board. Very much. And it's it's becoming a much bigger problem. You know, we lost 500,000 nurses to COVID fatigue and about a, 1 million more expected to age out by 2025. So definitely a problem to be solved. Need, need more nurses got to take care of them. 30% of the labor force. And here's the thing, Jeff, Gen Z doesn't tolerate toxic work environments very well. <laughs> <laughs> Where prior generations were more like Navy SEAL about it, like, yeah, it hurts, but whatever, I'm a nurse and I'm tough. I'm going to push through. Yeah, it's not that way anymore. Like, they're not going to tolerate that. They'll just be like, I don't like how you're talking to me. I will go find another job. (laughs) Right. Which I love the sass that comes with the other kind of sass, right? (laughs) Right, the other kind of sass. It comes with Gen Z. I think it'll make us better and healthier in our workspaces, the things that we typically accepted before are going to become no longer acceptable. The downside is that it's not attracting as many of our younger generation to come into this space. They're not going to handle micromanagers instead of inspirational leaders. They will job shop until they find something that makes them feel the way they want to feel. 
Do you know what I mean about their job and about impact? So I think a huge challenge in this staffing shortage is also going to be not even so much the pay. It's going to become a lot of, like you said, how do we build a culture that really nourishes people and really focuses on people? If we're going to focus on profits over people, it's that's not going to work for this coming generation. <laughs> They're just not having it. So. <laughs> but yeah, so the staffing shortage is, is becoming an increasing problem. My hope is that DropStat really looks at your entire inventory before you start looking at more high price solutions. And I think that having those efficient systems will really help a lot of healthcare facilities that may have been priced out of getting the care that's necessary, right? Many healthcare facilities are not going to be able to just afford to go access, you know, high-priced temp staff if they can't find internal labor. They're going to need more innovative solutions that help access their internal resources first. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick sponsor break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Sarah about unique ways for funding the company and biggest challenges in a startup. So right after this. Today's episode is sponsored by Champion Leadership Group. Get free growth tools and map out a growth plan to scale your SaaS business beyond $10 million in ARR. Travel with fellow SaaS entrepreneurs on your growth journey and use a proven methodology that is mentor-guided, results-focused, and peer-supported. Celebrate wins and quickly rebound from setbacks to achieve profitable growth, impact, and freedom. Unleash your SaaS growth today at championleadership.com. Welcome back to SaaS Fuel. My guest today is Sarah Well, founder and CEO of DropStat. And Sarah, in building DropStat, what is the one thing that you're most proud of today, your biggest accomplishment so far? Definitely my team. Without a doubt, I would have to say any one of them can speak to the pain points that we address with the same passion as the individuals that the healthcare providers that we represent and almost fight for every single day to have safer staffing environments. And they really know our clients' numbers as well. They really understand their data and how to drive the success metrics that we want. So every single one of them is just a little ball of energy and watching them grow into their leadership as well is really incredible. How do you develop that? Is that something that you hire or is it something that that they learn once they are hired? I think the best advice that I got on hiring is, you know, first of all, be super careful. Fire twice as quick as you hire. We hire for attitude. Skill sets can always be picked up if you have someone who's curious and really has an affinity for learning and likes to look things up. So we know what we look for in terms of attitude and really work ethic. So once we have that down, our ability to communicate not just the value of what we're doing, but the pain points that we're alleviating is very important. We bring people into the company that have been directly affected by safe staffing, that have watched patients get hurt by safe staffing, you know, issues within their own facilities. So making it very real to them is something that's really important to us. We attend safe staffing rallies. We have them speak to our clients and get as close to the patients that we're helping to protect as possible. And that is definitely advice I wish I had had early on, as I've always been uh, sometimes too quick to hire and always, always too slow to fire. Yeah, we've definitely had to make quite a few fires within the company. 
typically people, you know, they say people fire themselves. It's true. Yeah, exactly. I find that so true. People know when they're underperforming, especially in an environment of high performers. And we're in constant communication with our team members, right? So we have, you know, we do product side standups every single morning. Everyone clocks in on our communication platform. So everyone knows what everyone within the company is working on. And we've scaled from a team size of myself and a few developers, I would say about a year ago, to a team size of 42. And to stay organized, it's constant communication. Something different that we've done as a company is that we have an internal therapist that we've hired to do group dynamic therapy, which I think is probably our ace, our best kept secret is that we have created a safe space for people to be able to comfortably communicate things that are typically uncomfortable. So whether people have different communication styles about how they want a project delivered, someone who wants to be able to communicate a life change. So we have an internal therapist that is a mandatory meeting for every single person in the company. And everyone can speak about things that are going on that could affect their workflow and progress. If they want me off a meeting or anyone, they want anyone in leadership off of a meeting, then they can request that. But typically we're all together and we, we learn how to communicate and collaborate cohesively. Wow. So this is like a group session then? It's a group session. And actually we cover separate mental health and therapy sessions for each team member as well. So each team member has an hour that is allocated for our internal uh, counselor therapist who does like all kinds of, you know, corporate career progression counseling. There's so many people that have internal voices about what they deserve and their performance levels that affect their productivity that they don't even realize they're bringing into work. And whether it's, you know, a teacher in in fourth grade who told them that they couldn't or, you know, a toxic relationship they're trying to get out of, there's so much that inhibits people from really performing at their optimal. It's probably been our best investment thus far is having a therapist. They have to take that hour during work hours. Obviously, we can't force people to take therapy, but covering it and requesting that it's done during work hours. We've had so many staff members go through major life changes. In our small time as a baby startup, we've had staff members have relationship issues, a death within the family, and we haven't lost productivity. And not that that's the metric. The metric is a functional, healthy, well-performing staff member. And that performance speaks to their internal, you know, organization and their sense of well-being. But the number of days that our team has not taken off, despite having life-changing events, I directly attribute that to having internal counseling and therapy for our team members and really getting them the help that they need so that they don't feel lost and isolated in their workspaces. That's great. I haven't heard of anybody doing that for. I mean, some people have it sort of as a benefit and it's something that is just out there and, and available, but not really that focused. So, you know, applaud you for that because you're exactly right. It's the the, the mental health of the, the workforce that, that really does the work. And when they're healthy and productive, then things get done. hundred percent. And they're happier and they feel seen. Yes. And, and they are. But see... For us to communicate to our team members that they're valued, we have to show up with concrete action and 
ways of demonstrating that we value them. It's not enough to feel it and it's not enough to give them a job. They have to know it and they have to get the sense top down that their feelings matter, that the things that they're enduring on the home front matter. And, you know, one of the things that our therapist said that's so important is that you can't divorce yourself from your emotional self when you're at work. It's with you. No matter how high-powered, ambitious, you know, career-focused an individual is, it's so important to be able to merge those internal and external worlds so that you can have a more productive work experience. And we want our team members to do well. We want them to excel. We want them to not be held back by you know, prior history, traumas, and experiences. And the best way for us to create a space for them to work through those issues and give this their best shot is to provide them the support that they need. That's good. So that kind of growth in a year is tremendous. So how do you balance managing, hiring, all the things that you do as a leader and, you know, keep the the company running and keep everybody, you know, working in the same direction? Yeah. The challenge, I think, is not micromanaging when you have a vision for the result that you want. Selecting leaders, growing them into their positions, setting the company vision and their KPIs, but allowing them to hire the wrong person, allowing them to then go about having to fire that person and how that feels. That is sometimes the best way for our team members to learn so many times we over intervene and we over manage often in an attempt to protect our staff members from having to endure the difficulty of their own decisions. But I think, you know, as a mom, it's no different than parenting. Sometimes you have to provide the responsibility, empower them. And as long as it's not actually dangerous, step back and say, well, Let's debrief what did we learn and how can we change our process so that this doesn't recur? And how do we put in policy and enforcement into place so that we operate differently and this won't happen again? I love that. It's it's kind of a a lost art in management, I think. And uh, it's hard to do as an entrepreneur to let things go like that and let the team run with it. And, you know, I think you said it perfectly. It is an art because we're constantly creating ourselves as leaders and we're constantly building the team around us as well. And the leaders that we were yesterday shouldn't be ideally the leaders that we are tomorrow. So for me as well, it's a constant growth process. I think we're all very committed to actively learning this art form and this space and making sure that we're constantly challenging ourselves in this arena as well. How do we create more connected and cohesive teams? How do we ensure that our handoff process before anyone goes on vacation is as seamless as possible? How do we scale that? How do we create repeatable processes? How do we make sure that people are not getting bored and that they're constantly intellectually stimulated by their work? So as long as we keep asking ourselves these questions and we're never really complacent with where we are and and we treat it like an art and we're constantly building and growing something that we want to be more beautiful, so to speak, every single day, I think we'll be okay. That's great. So what do you do to continually up-level yourself as a leader? Well, for me, a lot of my education was built in LA traffic and grocery shopping. All the 
mundane things that we have to do to upkeep our lives that are not work focused. I try to always have some sort of podcast running, you know, as long as my kids are not with me and I'm, I'm not having to be present and focused on whatever it is that they are, they need or want to discuss. I try to always have something educational running in the background, whether it's Mind Valley or, you know, book audiobooks on Audible. There's the amount of free information though that's out there and readily accessible is mind blowing. You know, there's Harvard iLabs, there's Khan Academy, there's so much out there now more than ever. And we are so fortunate to have access to just oceans of free information. So for me, that's where I get most of my education because I'm always busy kind of doing something else. So it helps me learn while I'm online, you know, at a grocery store or, you know, sitting on traffic. Sitting in, sitting in traffic is not as stressful when you're learning in the process. So that's where I like to, you know, focus my learning. I'm the same way. Yeah, it's, it's always doing that while I'm doing something else. Because people always ask, you know, when do you have time to read and listen to things? And well, it's like all the time. It's just what I do, I'll do something else. I love that. It's a lot of fun. So what has been the role of mentors in, uh, in your success? Mentorship is huge. I would say anytime I go anywhere, I'm always on the prowl for a new mentor, whether it's how to network, whether it's how to create better deal structure, whether it's learning how to be more present in conversations. For me, that's a constant, constant priority, I would say. So my early mentors were people that have all taken products to acquisition. That was like my number one goal. How do you make decisions and how do you think about products and sales and product market fit in a way that enables the company and the product to scale? So the, my number one objective in looking for mentors was really to understand how they think, right? So like in medicine, there's a way that we think about disease process. There's a way that we think about treatment processes, you know, like let's say early symptom recognition. So I would say the counterpart in this specific product would be how early can we communicate that there's a shift need? How early can we intervene, right? So learning how to think about products and make decisions and structure, I guess my internal thought process and how I, we go about this work was my number one priority. So sometimes it was just sitting in on board meetings. If I had the opportunity to meet, you know, any given entrepreneur, I would never ask for money. I would always ask for just advice. You know, my biggest lessons came from asking how they failed. Like, what were your failures? Everybody's so focused on the successors and we don't know what factors were in play, like maybe they were in the right place at the right time. And I don't know that success is always repeatable because it could be very situational, but I feel like there's so much to learn from failure. Yes. What was a really bad note that you did not realize was predatory? Have you ever signed a bad convertible note? Have you ever given us, I don't know, preferential stock options to an investor accidentally? What does that look like? Have you ever made a mistake that kept you up at night? If you ever worry about something in the company, what is it? What are the two things that you wish you knew as a startup entrepreneur, let's say in your first year? So 
understanding those knowledge gaps for me is always like the biggest priority. It's a great conversation starter too, by the way. Oh, it is. People have stories and people have the most incredible advice that comes out of that. And it's the right piece of advice could be worth so much more than a really good investment. Without a doubt. Yeah. I love that. Asking the, the right questions and, uh, and talking about failures. Success is not always repeatable because that's true. Because you could be in the right place at the right time at the right market. And, you know, there have been times that uh, I thought I was a genius investor and then the market turned. Right. So it's one of those things of that success is not always repeatable, but the failures, the the lessons that come out of that are invaluable. A hundred percent. And to be honest, I'm not so keen on getting advice. And I'll tell you why. Like you said, a lot of it is situational. And what I find with with Silicon Valley and tech products specifically is that a lot of the advice is very contradictory. If you think about it, they'll say, run fast and break things. And they'll also say, be careful because there's major implications later for your decisions. And then they'll say, take money whenever you can, but be really careful to bootstrap because otherwise no one will want to invest if you give away too much of that cap table in a series B, right? And then they'll say, you know, take money whenever it's offered, but bad money is worse than no money because if it's <laughs> the terms are predatory. And then they'll say, you know, make sure that you take money from f- friends and family, but we also really need to be able to see that an early angel and, or investor VC wants to invest in you that has, you know, invested in enterprise products. So a lot of the advice is kind of collected from different companies that have, quote, gotten there, but their process is so unique to their product. Again, I don't know that that's always a repeatable model. And since many of these companies, unless they're founder VC funds, they haven't really built products, even though they may may have been on boards and teams. And the difference is that a lot of these companies have a nine out of 10 success rate. I mean, essentially a nine out of 10 failure rate. So, right. So right. <laughs> imagine going to a hair salon with a nine out of 10 <laughs> failure rate or like your surgeon, 90% of his surgeries are not successful. I mean, do you really want to be taking advice in that direction? It's You can have someone on your team. That's great. Have someone on the board. They're going to make someone sit on your board anyway. But in terms of guiding the way we practice after funds where there's such a high failure rate, I think the best strategy is really just try to look at what hasn't worked and see what you could learn from that and integrate that into your practice versus trying to create a model that's poorly understood at best and minimally successful. That's true. You know, you're a first-time founder coming from inside healthcare to the tech space, and I think you've made some creatively brilliant funding choices in growing Dropsat. Do you think access to capital is different being a female-led organization in the male-dominant tech world? What's your perspective on that? Wow. So we're going to do this, right? Yes, <laughs> let's do it. All right. So this is very different for me. I came from critical care where... I didn't notice that I was female. And I know that sounds crazy, but when you're saving lives and you're in a trauma environment and you're running quickly, the only priority is the patient 
and the protocols and making sure that the outcomes are what they are. And for example, like, I don't care if like the Senator, the president or the Pope tried to enter my patient's room without, let's say, washing their hands, redirect, hold up. Sorry. You know, there's no sense of like, I'm a woman, like there's some expectation of softness or it's patient focused. We're totally focused on the job. It never really played a role so much for me coming from medicine. There's a lot of, you know, women in medicine coming into the business world that changed very quickly. I would give a presentation and then I would be asked, how do you stand in those heels all day? going through metrics and our successes and 200%, you know, month over month growth and our clients became our investors and really important talking points that I would think would create a point of conversation. And it would be, so what do you do with your kids when you're working these 80 hour work weeks? And it had nothing to do with my presentation. It was such a what? Huh? And a moment. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Why are we talking about that? That was that never when I would go to a physician and say, my patient's desaturating or, you know, blood pressure is dropping quick. What are we doing here? There was never how are your kids? Where are your kids while you're here? <laughs> right. Right. Like, I feel like there's questions that people ask women that they don't realize they would never say that to a man in this space. And it just throws you off for a second. I had to get used to that. It's not everywhere, but it's very noticeable when it happens. So that has been a little bit different. You know, they say that it's much harder for women to raise. I don't have a frame of reference to compare. I just know that, you know, we hustle hard to find the right person. So I'm less focused on the victim side, although I definitely bumped into the microaggressions and I they're not intentional. Maybe they're fascinated by it, but it is something that really shouldn't be brought up in a work setting when we're discussing metrics and success. Like if the numbers are there and unless, unless I'm telling you, I couldn't create the Q3 report because I wanted to be at my kid's birthday party instead, then we can talk about that. But if I'm not bringing it up and I'm showing you a business plan and metrics, like let's stay focused here. <laughs> it was kind of inappropriate to bring it up. So yeah, I've definitely bumped into those sort of microaggressions. But in terms of our work, it could just make it easier for us to really focus on that partnership that's going to be right, the right growth partner for the company. With our first three clients, they became investors. We 4x what we thought we were going to save them. And, you know, they became investors with our companies. So we're very grateful for that. And that, you know, that speaks, I guess, to the platform's product market fit which we're constantly working on developing. It's not like we've arrived and we can cruise, you know, it's constant, you know, customer development, as you well know, is a constant focus. But in terms of, you know, raising capital, it's a huge challenge. Is it more challenging for women? You know, I don't know. I think it's difficult right now for all founders. I've definitely had my fair share of bizarre female focused questions. (laughs) I would have preferred not be part of the conversation, but you know, you keep going. In those moments, I have to be honest, I think to myself, how much more difficult must it be in a vulnerable or marginalized minority on top of being female? So I quickly kind of shift into empathy and setting some kind of long range goal that we have to really band together and 
create a more equitable space where we really help lift this playing field. It's so important to be global in our perspective, building products and services. We need an aggregate of founders that represent all walks of life if we're going to create anything that really meets the needs of all people. We need all people represented as founders, as investors, and we need to put a lot more effort into scouting for that, looking for it, grooming it wherever possible so that we can help create more leaders in that space where we see any sort of potential. So that's something that's a very big focus for us coming into the next two quarters. Without a doubt. That's great. And I think it's a really good answer. You know, some people would get up and say, it's, it's so much harder for me. And maybe it is, maybe it is. And being an entrepreneur is brutally hard to start with. And so you add other challenges on top of that. But you're exactly right. It, it's really about you know working together and making sure that everybody is represented in, in equal opportunity, that, uh, that we all have a shot. 100%. And, and it's going to be hard. There's no question about that. Yeah. But that, that opportunity is there and looking for that and helping other people along. 100%. We love it, though. So your clients were your initial investors. How did you go about developing those relationships or, or making those those connections where you they took that next step? So it's interesting because it sounds like the dream situation and it really speaks to how the product helps meet their needs. But think about it. When your client has an issue and they're your investor, there's no margin of it. Like you're taking that call the second they call. Do you know what I mean? So in a way, it really dialed up the pressure on us early on, which I didn't know going into it. So definitely, you know, really proud of the product and the team that came together to over deliver so that that could happen. But I wouldn't make that a goal for most founders. It's definitely got its fair share of difficulties because again, you know, you really work for them at that point. So taking feedback is not just something that you do graciously. It's an actual job, you know, so we quickly ramped up our project management team, our client success team to meet the very specific needs of our clients. And we didn't really have to hustle for it, to be honest, they offered, they kind of saw the value, which is really the dream. We didn't have to do a lot of presentations on it. And, you know, they kind of stepped in and said, Hey, we really want to be a part of the growth of the platform. So that's great. Very, very grateful. It says a lot about the platform. And just like you said, product market fit and just the, the value, the need of something like this and that the value of it in the, the workspace. Yeah. So what has been one of the greatest lessons that you've learned as an entrepreneur along the way? Being a non-technical founder and learning how to guide technical teams. That is probably the most incredible thing that I've learned as, as a, a leader at Dropstat. We do about six hours of tech stand-up meetings every single day because we have a really big team tech side. So everything from back end, front end, um, data side, UI, UX, I meet with all of the department leaders. I set their KPIs and exactly what they're working on. And it's a doubled workday almost. <laughs> because <laughs> if you think about it, you know, by the time I clock into work, I've done half of a workday, and then I do the other half at night. So We've been able to grow, I think, twice as fast as a fast moving startup, but we've put in a lot more time. And the advantages that 
our team product side has really been able to create a bridge where our project managers are not only getting iterative feedback from our clients, they're able to then walk it over to the dev side and communicate about, okay, so who's setting, who's creating this JIRA ticket? When are we going to see a fix? When are we going to be able to, you know, test the feature that we need in beta and then report back to the client. So we've been able to create a really incredible bridge between, you know, the front of the house and the back of the house, so to speak. And I would say the whole team, the crazy thing is, Jeff, with every new genre of whatever it is you're doing in business, I find it's like 50 vocabulary words. And when you learn those 50 words, you're speaking the language, right? So when you understand full stack, what sprints are happening when, and you know who's on which JIRA ticket and how Confluence works. When you start learning those key 50 words and what they mean and how they fit into what it is that you're trying to do, like you're speaking tech. <laughs> does that make sense? Yes. So, As a non-technical founder, it absolutely does. Yes, I am one too. So I may not be able to write the code, but I can say, okay, so can we go over the logic that's behind this feature? Because I think something here is not working the way that we want it to. So, yes. you know, what is the logic that's driving the code? So then, you know, I don't need to know how to code to be able to say, okay, so if we adjusted it like this, would that make it flow better? You know what I mean? So you can still have, have a say in how the back end of the product works without being a technical founder. Sure. And in the end, it's about the, the end result and then, you know, how we get there and what are the steps we take to get there. So it's the, you don't have to know the exact code to make that happen. So if you could go back to the very beginning, first thinking about the idea and starting Dropstat, what would be the advice you would give yourself way back then? I would tell myself to have a lot less anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> and to, I'm laughing because like I'm telling myself I could use this advice right now. Why not listen to the, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I would definitely tell our baby Dropstat self that we're going to get there and we're going to provide the value that we want to provide. We're going to be able to see this vision through and really just to enjoy the journey. There's, It's such a pressure cooker, as you well know. Yes. Today's success is not tomorrow's success. And today's happy clients are not tomorrow's happy clients. Everything is earned every single day. Nothing is a given. And even, you know, on the funding side, you know, I've had, I've had an investor who signed the paperwork and the markets turned and he did not have the funds to fund his note. You know what I mean? So that roller coaster of emotion, being able to create like a really, really even emotional state is so critical. I would tell my earlier self to don't let the highs take you high and don't let the lows take you low. Just stay focused, humble throughout the work, let the highs wash over you. Anything can change at any moment. And it doesn't mean not being grateful. It just means trying to keep an even emotional state. That's fantastic advice. Where can people find out more about you and about Dropstat online? Yeah. So we're Online, I would say dropsat.com, but LinkedIn is more like where our milestones are and where we communicate what we're doing next and 
who we're partnering with and what our next moves are. So I would say LinkedIn is my favorite spot for anyone who wants to follow our journey corporate side and any feedback that anyone has, any safe staffing stories that they have, a nurse that has touched them deeply that they want to share their story. We're so happy to broadcast that out on our platforms as well. And we're excited about our journey and the value that we're bringing to not just to healthcare, but really to helping to drive down the cost of care delivery. Drive down the cost of care and create safe staffing. 100%. Yeah, so important. Well, thank you for being on SAS Fuel. It's a fantastic interview. Wish you well with uh, much success. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Jeff. Very grateful. Well, thanks again to Sarah for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. You can learn more about Sarah and Dropstat at dropstat.com. And of course, check them out on all social media as well. As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. As a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com slash sasfuel. I'll be sure and read these out on a future episode or pick up the phone, give us a shout out at 903-SAS-FUEL and I will play your comments and give a shout out to you and your company in a future episode. Tune in next week for our conversation with Joshua Drake, JD, founder and president of Command Prompt, the oldest Postgres company and also the host of the podcast, More Than a Refresh. JD lives life way outside the traditional corporate norm, traveling the country as a digital nomad. This is a really fun, insightful conversation with a successful founder who absolutely lives life to the fullest. So check it out next week. And until we meet again, enjoy the journey.